All right, we're in John 12, and we're going to start with the middle of verse 36. Wait a minute. Yeah, uh, actually, the beginning of verse 36. And I haven't been having everybody read around the table because you all have the Bible in front of you. So I'm, I'm going to just plunge in. I think it saves us time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. So Jesus has uh, been talking about being glorified by his Father, and he is glorified. He then talks about, now is the judgment of this world, now the ruler of this world will be driven out, that we discussed last week. And he talks about, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to me, in verse 32. And I pointed out last week that it's not all men, it's not all people, it's all. Mm. It's the whole universe is drawn to Jesus by his death on the cross. And then he talks about the light is with you a little longer. Walk while you have the light, so the darkness may not overtake you. If you walk in the darkness, you do not know where you are going. Where, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become children of the light. And of course, what we know is that the light becomes greater the more we follow it and walk in it. Now we come to verse 36, the middle of verse 36. After Jesus had said this, he departed and hid from them. Why? Why does Jesus hide? It's not his time yet. It's not in it. Not his time yet. It does say that somewhere else, doesn't it? The Gospels. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, in, later in thirteen, he says that his time has come. Right. He's been saying that for quite a few years, actually. For th- about three years, Jesus has said, my hour has not yet come. Yeah. He says that was his first miracle, yeah. turning the water into wine. What does verse 37 say, though, that might help us with this past, this uh, question? They did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. Why would you hide from someone who doesn't believe in you? It seems like you would want to come out and really show them mm-hmm. who you really are. Why would you hide from them? Well, he's done so many things before. There's nothing he can do to change their mind. Die is cast, huh? You know what that expression comes from. Explain. Uh, die, when you die clothing, for example. Mm-hmm. You can't go back. The di- you can reverse the die if it's not cast. Oh. It's once the die is cast, it can't be reversed. Mm. So, it comes from that. It seems to me in our world... It's getting harder and harder to discuss things with people. Yeah. That they have their minds made up, and nothing you say is going to change it. In fact, the more you talk, the worse it gets. <laughs> so Jesus is faced with this. This is, called, this is what I would call a maturation point. When light is shed, it brings maturity. It brings maturity whether you are grapes or grain. And I'm, I'm using the metaphor from Revelation, which is also John's book, where he talks about the harvest of the grapes of wrath and the harvest of the, of the grain, which is the righteous. What brings that to fruition, to, to maturity, to where it is fixed, and it, it can only go on and, and start receding itself, is... Uh, the light shining on it brings it to maturity, which means that whenever we give the truth about God, we are, 
we are actually causing a settling into the truth or a settling into denial of the truth. Because by shedding light on people, that you give them the opportunity to embrace the light and be transformed by the light, or to reject the light and to harden their hearts against the light, so that the more light you shine, the more they harden their hearts against it. This is how God hardened Pharaoh's heart, is by sending him the light of the truth Mm. about his uh, supremacy as God. So, do you have something to say, Kim? Um, I'm just wondering, the thought runs through my mind, he hid from them because so many times they wanted to kill him, does that have anything to do with... Um, well, I think it has to do with, my hour has not come. My hour meaning, that's the, I'm, I, whatever I do, I do with a perspective of the cross. And so, uh, I, I, can't, I can't hasten it before it's time, um, but once it's time then I'm ready to hasten it. But that doesn't seem to be the case here because he's already hastened it. In chapter 11, by the resurrection of Lazarus, that was a deliberate move that he knew would bring him to the cross. Uh, And then uh, his triumphal entry was the second move, deliberate move to bring him to the cross. So it seems to me he departed and hid from them, maybe because he didn't want to die any other way than he had just said he would die. So that, that may be the problem. See, they've tried to thrown him several times. They tried to throw him over a cliff mm-hmm. once. Uh, there's other ways to kill him than the cross. He wants to make sure that the way he dies is the way yeah. he's supposed to die. Uh, so that, that could have something to do with this being hidden. But it, it's intriguing. The reason John gives us, they, they had so many signs, but they did not believe in him. And that's in conjunction with his hiding. Um, is it possible that Jesus knows that if he shines too brightly right in their face, they'll resist him? Whereas if he backs off and hides, he gives them time to think yeah. about what has just happened. You know, we don't operate on that science very well, do we? Uh, we tend to shine in people's eyes. Don't we? I try to do this with my grandbabies because I've been watching them for these few weeks. It's not easy, <laughs> you know. And uh, I know that sometimes it's, it's easier when I just ignore them and move on. And then they'll come back to me. Grandma, Grandma, where are you? Yeah. And they come back more calm. More. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a human psychology, is it? Really. Some people feel in parenting, if you have more than two children, you can end up with a lot of squabbling and fighting and screaming. Mm-hmm. And some people feel that when you intervene constantly and make them not do that, that you actually deprive them of the ability to work through social situations and problems in life. That's true. Um, It's better to let them leave them alone and let them fight it out, (laughs) as long as nobody's (laughs) killing one someone, (laughs) and um, and give them that opportunity to grow and develop skills that they wouldn't otherwise and solve social problems. Something to think about. Is that why God seems to have such a, what we call laissez-faire, hands-off kind of modality with planet Earth? You think about what his heart must break over Syria. Why doesn't he intervene? Well, he gave this planet the choice of intervening. And we don't seem to be doing a very good job of it. But I, I do think that uh, there's a time when things 
have to work themselves out and it has to uh, develop in order for things to become clear. So this was to fulfill the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah. The Lord who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. And so they could not believe because Isaiah also said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they might not look with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Why does it say he hardened at her hearts? He blinded their eyes. It's the same thing with Pharaoh, yeah. Same thing with Pharaoh, okay? The deterministic language. So the way, the way he hardens their hearts is by shining the light. And the, verse 41 seems to suggest that Isaiah saw, said this because he saw the glory and spoke about him. However, many of the authorities believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. They loved human glory more than the glory that comes from God. That happened any time today? Something so changed. It's so sad because they're so close. And they're rulers and they believe in him, but they just can't let go. Mm-hmm. They can't say it. I know an abundance of people who won't say what they really believe because flack they would get. Now we come to 44 to 50. I'm going to go ahead and read this because it is a synthesis of Jesus' message about his Father. This is, this is the core of what he came to reveal. Then Jesus cried aloud, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word I have spoken will serve as judge, for I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus isn't trying to make a explanatory statement here. He's making a a synthesis, a statement of synthesis. So these are the core, almost a a credo, uh, the core beliefs that he's trying to transmit. So the one who sent him, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the one who sent him. He came as light. He does not judge. We're judged by the words that he spoke, by the truth that he spoke. This, go, this by the way, this, this paragraph is very similar to the paragraph in John 3, where Jesus makes it clear they did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world. And, and human beings accept the darkness instead of the light. This is interesting that John puts this here. Apparently this is what Jesus says at the end of the day. 
Um, if you jump over to 14, verse 9, uh, Philip says, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And Jesus almost says to him, uh, don't you remember what I just said? <laughs> anyone who has seen the one who sent me, has, he, anyone who has seen me has seen the one who sent me. Okay, we're ready to start 13, the foot washing. I'm going to share a little background about washing feet. In Asian cultures, particularly in Thai culture, but I believe this is true in Hebrew culture as well, anything that has to do with the feet is almost obscene. It's, it's dirty, it's bad, it's something you don't talk about. And there's a beautiful little story that John Dibital tells. Uh, he wrote it for Insight Magazine many years ago of how one time he, he was teaching English as a student missionary over in Thailand. I believe that he was a student missionary at that time. And um, there was a woman in the class who uh, was absent a day or two, and when she returned, he inquired of her why she had been absent. She was very embarrassed, and through many ums and ahs and 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 trying to beat around the bush, she finally confessed she had a foot problem, problem with her feet. That's why she hadn't been in class. And uh, a few days later, uh, John Dibdell himself missed class. And when he came back, this woman came up to him and inquired why he had been absent. And through many ahs and ums and, and reading around the bush, John confessed that he'd had dysentery, i.e. diarrhea. I mean, in American culture, that's obscene and dirty, and mm-hmm. and you don't want to talk about it. Embarrassing. So it, it kind of taught it taught him uh, a little bit about you know the differences in cultures and, and so on. And so he went on, and sometime later, uh, a Buddhist friend took him to visit a man who was who was painting a mural of all the great religions of the world, and he was com- trying to create different scenes uh, to put in these murals so that you could get a clear idea of the differences in the different religions. So John tried to tell you, he wanted to know what Christianity, what was different about Christianity, and, and John tried his best to talk about the cross. The cross didn't mean anything. It had no uh, ability, for, because they all had their dying and rising gods. So dying and rising again was not a sp- spectacular difference for them. Uh, and so John's racking his brain, what can I show him that from Jesus' life that shows the difference of Christianity? And he finally remembered John 13. Ah, Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And so he told him the story that we're about to look at. And the man crinkled his face in amazement and he said you mean that the founder of your religion knelt down and washed his disciples feet gave John a completely new insight into Jesus back in Palestine in Jesus day doing the foot washing was so degrading that not even the lowest slave was willing to perform it Usually they got women, as my understanding, to perform this task. 
They come to this upper room and there's no one to wash feet. Remember the story of Simon and the woman who anoints Jesus' feet? There was no one there to wash his feet. Simon didn't provide a foot washer. But once again, the disciples are meeting and there's no one to wash their feet. And it appears they would rather just go without it than to humble themselves enough to do it. There have been people who have said that we shouldn't do foot washing anymore after all. Our feet are clean and, and we, you know, this is kind of outdated. What would you pick to take his place that would match what Jesus did? The only thing I can think of is changing bedpans. I don't think we could do that. I don't think we could manage that. But that's that's comparable. I think I'll stick with foot washing. Um, so with that background in mind, uh, we come to this. Now before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to his Father. Why does John start there with foot washing? As he's leaving, he shows them the essence of his work by doing this and how much he really loves them. Okay. And how he's willing to. Okay, so this this is a nice uh, way of introducing it. Is there any specific theological implication of this on the foot washing? I mean, it goes back to water again, doesn't it? The thing of water. Kind of yeah. Good. What is Jesus going, departing from this world and going to the Father? Theologically, have to do with the foot washing. I don't know. The question could it have anything to do with um, you know sometimes something in reality echoes something that's actually inside, and it has to do with um, him showing him being a servant that he was bending so low, not only coming from heaven to the cross but also that he was trying to demonstrate literally to be a servant so that they would get the idea of just not only how much was given to save us but also how much we need to give to soften our hearts okay yeah, I, I see there's a connection between him coming from the Father and going back to the Father and this foot washing. Well, let's read on. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon, Iscariot, to betray him. What does that have to do with this? Some think that, and Ellen White's in this group, some think that when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, that he had John on one side of him and Judas on the other side of him. And that he knelt and washed Judas's feet first. So even, it's kind of demonstrating loving your enemies. Mm -hmm. Jesus doesn't exclude Judas. He doesn't treat Judas any differently. In fact, he gives him the level of preeminence. Which is just amazing, considering how grasping Judas was for power and money. Mm-hmm. To give him that preeminence is just like you're just pouring oil on, on fire. Mm-hmm. What are you doing that for? But Jesus is going to leave him with no excuse. 
And at the same time, he loves Judas. And he, this is his one last act to try to change Judas's mind and what he's about to do. So during supper, Jesus, and here I think is where we have our answer to our first question. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. The way Ellen White interprets that verse is Jesus was fully conscious of his divinity as he knelt and washed the disciples' feet. He did this as God, not as a human example, but as God. It was a God-human example because he gave it to us to be to use as an example. But it was, he did this in his divinity. He did this as God. And of course, Jesus never says, I'm your example, follow me. Who does he say is our example? The Holy Spirit. Be perfect, therefore, as my Father in heaven is perfect. Mm-hmm. Of course, you understand perfect as mature. So Jesus does this as God. He got up from the table, took off his outer robe, tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Who washed Jesus' feet that night? Okay. What do you mean? You should wash your spouse's feet, you know? <laughs> Family mm-hmm. feet. I think this is one way to say, okay, I'm, I don't want to wash nobody's feet by myself. You know what I mean? I don't feel too comfortable. I like to wash somebody else. Feet. Yeah. And wash the family feet. Because mm-hmm. it's easy, you know, to yeah. wash. That's the thing. It's easy. Easy is easy. And yeah. I look like for me, I say, ah, I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not serving here. Yeah, it's, it's more and more humbling yeah. to wash someone you don't know. Yeah. 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 I, that's why I look forward to communion, is it's an opportunity to find who God is going to put me with. Yeah. Uh, to minister to them, yeah. to wash their feet. And for that reason, I think even if I were married, I suppose my husband and I would have an argument about <laughs> what to do in communion <laughs> Sabbath, but but I probably would say I think we should go our separate ways and and wash someone else's feet uh, because I can always wash your feet at home, dear. <laughs> yeah, I told John about it, but we're still doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah. it'd be interesting yeah. to do that. Yeah. But in verse twelve, um, he washed their feet and then sat down again. So. So no he one washed their feet. He washed their feet. No one washed yeah. Jesus' feet. Mm-hmm. Think of the opportunity they could have had. That would have been amazing. Yeah. I mean, you probably wouldn't see that kind of response until after the pouring out of the Spirit. Because they still didn't quite get the message yet. Like, you see them and... You see the responses coming up to the cross, and they're still not completely understanding the whole purpose of why Jesus is there. And so I feel like that's why they never offered to wash his feet, because they didn't really understand yet. They didn't understand the opportunity. Yeah. To me, this is a powerful, powerful moment. It's one thing to talk about the kingdom and say, yeah, whoever is great among you must be your servant. 
That's another thing to get down on your knees and illustrate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the very lowest level of society. Because this is the lowest down thing you can do. And Jesus says, That's not, I'm not too dirty to do that. I'm not, I'm not, too, I'm not too pure and holy to do that. This is, this is what love does. This is what holiness is, is kneeling down and washing dirty feet. So he comes to Simon Peter, who remonstrates with him and said, you are never going to wash my feet. And Peter says, okay, you can't take part of me because obviously you're, you're above my kingdom. My kingdom's down here. Yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so Simon says, Lord, not only my feet, but my head and my hands. And Jesus says, no, you only need your feet because... Uh, You've already bathed. You've been baptized. And then he says, uh, and you are clean, though not all of you. The you there is plural. So he's talking to his disciples now. So when in verse 10, it's probably addressed to everybody. So Jesus is probably looking around at everybody in the group. It wasn't just Peter. Oh, he's talking to the first half of this. Okay. Did did all the disciples have knowledge of what Judas is doing? Because I know that John says it, but John writes years after. Uh, my my sense of things is they did not know. They didn't know about his collaboration with the priests mm. and the Pharisees. So then he says to him, verse them in verse twelve, "Do you know what I have done to you?" You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. How he must have wished to say, and my father would be here doing this if he were here. You could, uh, if, if So, if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this became a hallmark of the Christian faith. I remember when I taught overseas, I had a student who uh, decided he wanted to become an Adventist. And we were studying together, and we came to Communion Sabbath. And I was a little nervous with his background and culture, being Asian, how he would handle the foot washing. And uh, so I I had some trepidation, and I I tried my best to explain it. We went over John 13, and uh, he came to me afterwards, after the foot washing, he said, that was just beautiful. It was so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> the experience, I think, is, if, if we're open to it, it is amazing. We don't have many rituals where we touch one another, do we? In Christianity, can you think of any other rituals where we touch other people? Besides baptism, no. Yeah, and baptism is, is lowering a person in the water. Yeah, Believe me, that touch person. is more of a, I'm going to save you out of this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Having baptized people, you know, they're a little nervous about you putting them under the water, especially when you're as short as I am. Yes. Anointing. Anointing. Anointing, okay. Having an anointing service, yes. That is one place we touch. That is a ritual. But we don't do that to, the time. But we don't do it to everyone. Yeah. Um, we only do it to those who ask for it. 
For comfort? Yeah, but that's not a that's not a ritual. Yeah. Consecration. Consecration, laying on of hands. Yeah. Yes. I remember the first time I had the hands hands laid on me. I was here at the PUC church and I was being ordained as an elder. And it was like, when it, when it came time to lay hands on it, the hands just came down on me. It just descended <laughs> on me at once, and it pushed my head down. <laughs> and um, um, it was, but it was very powerful. And I remember the pastor saying to me, this is your ordination to ministry. Uh, because at that time, women were not allowed to be ordained anywhere. And, and I remember it being a very powerful moment. It felt like God had put his hands on me at that moment. Yeah, we do have a few rituals like that, but not all inclusive. Only certain people get ordained mm -hmm. or commissioned or um, what have you. We, we are selective about most of them. This is one for everyone. And this is about washing feet. By the way, in certain countries in Africa, it's a symbol of, of just greatness to wash someone's feet. That's really cool. Hmm. I mean, uh, I had a, a student one time who was from Africa. I can't remember which country. I think Kenya. Uh, and she said that she grew up as a child washing her father's feet when he'd come home from work. Uh, and they would they would wash his feet and make over him, and it was a, just a really communal time for the family, and and it was it was very meaningful, uh, and she had no problems with feet washing <laughs> as a result of that. So he returns to his place after putting back his robe on. He says, "Do you know what I've done to you?" Okay, I I read that. Truly, I t this is one of the few times Jesus says, "I'm your example for this." I have set you an example that you should also do as I have done to you. Truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. I'm not greater than my father. He would have done this. Implications. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But it is to fulfill the scripture, the one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Actually, the Hebrew, uh, the Greek is that you may believe that I am. Mm -hmm. Very truly, I tell you, whoever receives the one whom I resend receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, before we turn, the, before I turn the page, because right here I end the page. Why does Jesus keep using "I am"? For Moses. What is "I am"? Before Abraham was, I am. Mm -hmm. And now, very truly, I tell you, he receives me. Well, isn't that God's receives, name? I'm sorry. What? Isn't that God's name? Because when yes. Moses asked him, what should I tell them? And he said, tell them I am. Of course, he's always doing right. I am. I am who I am. Yes. Um, he's referring, from what I've been told, he's referring back to he's the all-sufficient one. And when he was talking to Moses, he's saying, 
you know about the all-sufficient one, the Almighty. I am that I am. And so he is trying to also maybe, um, I don't know, maybe tell, you know, remember that I am, I am that I am, without directly saying. He actually is pretty directly saying, I am. Yeah. I mean, any Jew, any Jew would know he's saying that name. And they weren't yeah. to say it. Like, keep, keep in mind, they call him Lord and Master because there were many lords, little L's, running around yeah. <laughs> Palestine in Jesus' day. But the Lord that Jesus wants them to call him is the substitution for I am. You know that I'm going to write this on the board, even though those listening to us can't <laughs> see it. If you have a big capital L and then smaller capital O-R-D in Lord, that, wherever you see that in the Old Testament, that is a substitution for I am, hmm. for Yahweh. Now, Yahweh itself is a substitution. Because I am is not Yahweh, it is Ehyeh. And no one would ever say it. So, what happened is during the exilic period, Jews became very conscious of the fact they had brought the exile on themselves and that they had bought, brought it on through not keeping the commandments of God. <clears throat> so they became meticulous and keeping the commandments. And when they came to commandment number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. And that Yahweh is God, well, it is a substitute for God's name, which I gave you. They decided that they couldn't even pronounce Yahweh because that's what's in the text. So instead of pronouncing it, they substituted the word Adonai. And everywhere you see the Lord in the Old Testament with capitals, you are seeing the you are you are seeing the substitution of Adonai worked into the Greek translation of the Old Testament and, and reflected in the Latin Vulgate and finally in our English versions. There's hardly <coughs> any translators who have ever gone back to Yahweh. And believe me, if you're reading a paper, as I did once, I read a paper for the Society of Biblical Literature International Meetings in Cambridge, England, one summer. And um, about a third to half of the room were Jews from Israel. And I have the happy distinction of looking Jewish. <laughs> so I debated to my friend who was with me, who was Nancy Lacourt. <clears throat> I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, I think you want to be yourself. Because I didn't know whether to read Adonai or Yahweh in my paper. I read Yahweh and, and that half of the room gasped um, because they expected me not to do that. 
But this is how serious this is. So when Jesus says, I am, it just throws up all red flags. I mean, he's blasphemy. He's, he's breaking the third commandment flagrantly. And that's why they pick up stones to stone him in John, in John 8. I personally think it's breaking the third commandment more to lose sight of the name of God and to substitute something for it that has misrepresented him. So you're saying like substituting that and then using that like more frequently because it's kind of like almost like beating around the bush. Like well, it it isn't just beating around the bush. You're qualifying God as as His character. Everything is about kingship. It's about lordship. Mm-hmm. And that's not what Jesus came to reveal. That is not who God is. Mm-hmm. As a substitution, a man-made substitution of Adonai for Yahweh. And you look at Yahweh, Yahweh is, well, in the first usage of it that I, I mentioned, yeah, yeah. that is a cal imperfect, first, common, singular verb, to be. I am. Why would God choose the verb to be as his name? As his character name. Yeah. Does it have anything to do with his preeminence of all existing? Uh, okay, and and the cal the the cal imperfect is constant. It is ongoing. Uh, whereas if you cho- if he'd chosen the perfect, which would have been a little different verb uh, to be, it would have been more punctiliar or more bounded by time. But this this has no time, this has a timelessness. I am always, I will always be, I will have always been. And in Hebrew you don't really have tense, you have simply um, constant or non-constant time. But there's something you need to know about that verb to be. It is not static. It is dynamic. It is being. It is. It is being. And it. it and I. I don't know how to really to try to describe it. To me, that he would choose this name means I am who I am, and I won't change. I won't be any other. I am constant. So, um, to me this is very important. He's asking them to believe that he's God. That he bears the name of Yahweh. And this is something the disciples hardly get. And we don't get it today because... Even this translation has it in a footnote that he said, I am, period. They say that I am he. They tra- add the word he. That's not in the Greek. And so you lose the huge importance of recognizing that Jesus is God. He is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Our time is up. 
Let's start with verse 21 because we're really changing topic now. Mm. We're focusing more on Judas. And uh, we can finish that next week. And begin verse 14. Father, we pray that we may not lose sight of the fact that when you say you are God, it means not a hierarchical position that you obtained in the universe where you lord it over others. But it means that you are sovereign servant. That you rule at the foot of our feet. That is, that you rule as you kneel down and you wash your disciples' feet. That your throne became a cross. And that for you, the way of kingship is the way of self-sacrificing love. It does not seek its own. May we admire you not for kingly power, not for authority and sovereignty, but for the love that you showed and the way that you showed it and the nature of your kingdom. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.